the truths that we read. In your name, amen. Well, there was a couple from Minneapolis who decided to go to Florida for a weekend to get and thaw out from the icy winter. And because both had jobs, they had difficulty coordinating their travel uh, schedules. So it was decided the husband would go Thursday and his wife would come down on Friday. Upon arriving as planned, the husband checked into the hotel and there he decided to open his laptop and send his wife an email back to Minneapolis. However, he accidentally left off one letter in her address and sent the email without realizing his mistake. In Houston, a widow had just returned from her husband's funeral, and he was a minister of many years who had gone home to be with the Lord following a long illness. So the widow checked her email expecting messages from relatives and friends. Upon reading the first message, she fainted, fell to the floor, and the widow's son rushed into the room, found his mother on the floor, and saw the computer screen, uh, which read, to my loving wife from your departed husband, Subject, I've arrived. I've just arrived and I've been checked in. I've seen to it that everything has been prepared for your arrival tomorrow. <laughs> Looking forward to seeing you then. Hope your journey is as uneventful as mine has been. P.S. Pack lightly, it's really hot down here. <laughs> All right. I'm glad to make you laugh. <laughs> Well, throughout our lives, there are many things that we look forward to, whether it's a wedding, a birth of a child, an exciting trip or vacation that you've planned, or a special family reunion. And all of these types of things are really the best things that life on planet Earth has to offer. However, in reality, what we ought to be looking forward to more than anything else is the imminent return of Jesus. Titus 2.13 says we are to be looking for this blessed hope. That means we'll be expecting it or eagerly waiting and looking forward to seeing Christ. I realize that there is a great deal of confusion and differing thoughts uh, regarding this whole concept of the church of Jesus Christ being raptured before, during, or after the tribulation. The truth of the rapture is seen in our study today, even though the word rapture is not actually used. Just as the Bible doesn't use the words incarnation or trinity or inerrancy, does not mean that these doctrines are not taught in Scripture. In our study today, we see in verse 17 the word caught up, which in the Greek means to snatch up, to seize, to carry off by force. Paul used that same word when he talked about being caught up to the third heaven. The Latin translation of this verse uses the word rapture to describe this catching up. It is the experience of being carried away from one place to another. We know from 1 Corinthians 15, 51, that this event will take place suddenly. It's not a process, but it will happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. So the carrying away of the church by Christ has come to be known as the rapture of the church. From our studies in past years, We've learned about the kingdom of God being a literal thousand-year reign of Christ here on earth from Revelation chapter 20. The early Christians expected the Lord to return quickly and set up his kingdom <clears throat> on earth. But when that didn't happen, the church began to think up different views about what the kingdom really meant. Thus, we have the amillennial view that says there is no literal kingdom. 
that the blessings promised to Israel are actually for the church. So the church experiences the fulfillment of kingdom blessings. By the 17th century, a new teaching about the millennial kingdom began called the post-millennial view. This says before the return of Christ, there will be a worldwide experience of peace and righteousness due to the efforts of the church. The thinking is that the world's going to get better and better until it finally becomes so good we just enter the kingdom. I don't think this plan is working out well. <laughs> At the end of the kingdom, Christ returns, and that is why they call it a post-millennial view. The problem with both these views is that they spiritualize the passages about the kingdom. When the Bible speaks about the kingdom, it is speaking literally. After all, it is a literal Messiah who sits on a real literal throne in a real literal city called Jerusalem, from which he will reign, according to Isaiah 65 and Jeremiah 31. The Old Testament prophets proclaimed to Israel that there would be a literal kingdom, the lion will lay down next to the lamb and all of that, and that is how the nation understood it. That's how the disciples understood it to be. This is why I believe the kingdom of heaven fits best with a premillennial view of a literal thousand-year reign of Christ over the kingdom from Jerusalem. So there's nothing in Scripture to indicate that this prophecy is all figurative, and thus it makes sense that Christ will come before the kingdom. Among those who believe that Christ comes before the kingdom, there are three views about the rapture of the church. We have, some would say the church is going to go through the seven-year tribulation, and then we'll be raptured and do a U-turn and come back with Christ. This is a post-tribulational view. There are others who believe the church will be raptured in the middle of the tribulation. Obvious, this is called the mid-trib view. And then there is the pre-tribulational view, that the church is raptured before the tribulation begins, and they remain in heaven for that seven-year period, then will return with Christ at the second coming. Well, you may be thinking, does it really matter anyways, all these different thoughts when it, as to when the Lord's going to come? It certainly doesn't impact our salvation, but it does impact how we live out the reality of our salvation. In Matthew 24, 1 through 44, Jesus tells his men all about the tribulation period and the second coming. It is a most fearful time that will come upon all of mankind on earth. Famine, earthquakes, pestilence, millions of people killed in extreme judgments, which Revelation lists as the bowl judgments, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments. Horrors, things have never been experienced on this earth. If the church is going to go through this, you would assume in this passage in Matthew 24 that Jesus would have told us as the church how to prepare, how to start stocking up on food, where we should run, where we should hide. But scripture does not tell us to look for the tribulation and to prepare for the Antichrist. Rather, we are told to look for the Lord and to be prepared to be in his presence. If Jesus doesn't come for his church until after the tribulation, then that will drastically change the way we live because there is no longer any imminency like it could happen at any moment. It also changes the truth of our motivation. What we see in chapter 1, verses 3 and 10, what we saw, makes no sense if there is no rapture. And where he said, and to wait for his son from heaven who rescues us from the wrath to come. So without the rapture, we're actually looking for the Antichrist. Without the rapture of the church, how are we to be comforted by these words, as verse 18 in our study says today? 
There is no comfort in waiting for the tribulation. And there is the whole matter then of purity. In 1 John 3, we read about having a confidence that when he appears, so that we will not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. As I've said before, what, what will you be saying? What will you be doing if it happened to catch you up? The hope of our salvation is that Christ could come at any moment. So that means, ladies, that the battles that we face, the trials you are in right now, are not going to last forever. They're a short term. Hold on, because he's coming. So believing that Christ will come and catch us away, the church, his bride, motivates us uh, to live pure lives, and it also brings us such incredible comfort. I remind you that the tribulation period is not about the church age, but rather it is about God dealing with the nation of Israel. It is a time of Jacob's trouble, according to Jeremiah 30 and Daniel 9. Israel will finally be restored to the land and their Messiah and the kingdom age will be ushered in. We know from Daniel that Antichrist will make a covenant with Israel and the temple will be rebuilt in that seven-year tribulation right at the start of it. So he's going to be quite the persuasive man to get the Muslim community to be okay with the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. But after three and a half years, that Antichrist will violate his agreement with Israel. He will sit himself down and demand that he be worshipped in the temple. And then begins a holocaust against Israel where two-thirds of the Jewish people will be wiped out by him. So this is all about Daniel's people. It's all about the holy city of Jerusalem, not the church. We have seen that the church age exists in the book of Daniel between the 69th and 70th week that he speaks of. And the purpose of the tribulation is to purge Israel so that they finally recognize their Messiah is Jesus. There's no point for the church to experience the wrath of God because that's the very work that Christ accomplished on our behalf on the cross. He bore the wrath of God for all who would put their trust in Jesus. So in the tribulation, unbelieving Israel and Gentile nations will have unleashed upon them God's wrath. The pattern seen throughout scripture is that God delivers the righteous before he sends judgment, just like he did with Noah, just like he did with Lot, so he will do with the church. So Revelation 3.10 tells us that the church is kept from that hour of testing which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. This will be uh, because the church will be raptured before all of this tribulation begins. So it's true that believers have experienced wrath from individual people. Many believers right now today are being martyred for their faith, being tortured for their faith. But this is man's wrath no doubt inspired by demonic forces, but this is not God's wrath. Throughout the New Testament, we are reminded to look for Christ to come, but it is Israel that is told to look for signs and events that will come upon the earth before their Messiah comes back. The important truth that we must keep in our mind is that the church is not the nation of Israel. Jesus first mentioned the church in Matthew 16, 16 18, as you know, Israel had existed for thousands of years before that, uh, before Jesus spoke about the birth of the church. So he didn't say, and I will add to my, uh, to my church, talking about like I'm adding, like Israel was really the church, so now I'm going to add to the church so the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
Uh, no. Revelation 13, 7 says that Satan overcomes the saints during the tribulation and they are put to death. That is not the, tr- that is not the same for the church. The church, the gates of hell will not prevail. In the tribulation, those who come to faith in Jesus will be killed for their faith. They will be overcome. In 1 Corinthians 15, it speaks that of a mystery. And that is something that was hidden in the Old Testament, but then is revealed to us in the New Testament. We read, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Paul is speaking to the Corinthian believers, um, not in, in this church age, not the nation of Israel. So with all of this set as background, let's look at our passage for today. The believer is God's plan for the rapture of the church, verses 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and it really should be, and since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So these believers in this church were concerned uh, about their loved ones and friends who had died, who had fallen asleep. Sleep is a synonym for death of a believer. Uh, God calls death sleep because when a believer dies, his body is temporarily at rest as it awaits the resurrection. Contrary to what many teach today, it is only the body that sleeps, not the soul. Our soul goes directly into the presence of Christ if we know him, as Paul said, to for me to live is Christ to die is gain, and to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. Everyone who grieves the separation and the heartache and the pain that death brings of a loved one has this hope if their loved one knows the Lord. However, we are not to grieve, we do grieve for sure, but not the same way as the pagan world around us who have no hope. They make up nice thoughts about what heaven will be like. They like to think about what their loved ones are doing. After, and they always hear them say, they're in such a better place. There is terror, though, that surrounds an unbeliever on their deathbed. They have no assurance or true basis for hope. It is all wishful thinking. But that is not the case for those of us who know Christ. And apparently the Thessalonians thought that the, the believers who died we're going to miss out on something or have to wait longer for the resurrection. So Paul teaches them how certain their hope really is. And in verse 14, as I said, our grief and our sorrow is not like that of unbelievers because our hope is based on Christ's death and resurrection. The word uh, if, as I said, should be since we believe Jesus died and rose again. If Christ died and rose again, then we can be certain that believers who have died will also be raised at the rapture and have a resurrected body. The reality that Christ is resurrected means that all 
who believe in him will also be resurrected. No one is left out. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, Christ is the first fruits of those who sleep. Because he died and rose, those who are in him will die and raise from the dead. <clears throat> so the chron chronology of this future event is seen in verses 15 through 17. Paul assures them that those who have died are not going to miss out on anything. In fact, those alive at the rapture will be the ones who follow the dead who are raised first as their new bodies meet their spirit and their soul. We know at this very moment Christ sits at the right hand of the Father, but he will leave his throne and descend into the atmosphere of this earth where he will give a loud shout. This word means a shout of a command. <clears throat> Remember when Jesus gave the command to Lazarus come forth? As I heard one Bible teacher say, if he hadn't identified just Lazarus, everybody'd come forth. So along with the shout of the Lord, the voice of the archangel will be heard. You recall Michael is an archangel of the Lord, his, a general among angels, and we, see it, uh, and we have seen in Scripture that he is associated with fighting demons. We're not told what he will say when he shouts, but it's probably a shout of victory as Christ comes for his church. Indeed, at last the church will be completely triumphant. At last the bridegroom has come to take his bride to the place to be with him. And along with Christ's shout and the angel's voice shouting, there is the trumpet of God. A trumpet was often used to gather God's people to do something. And at the rapture, the trumpet blast will call God's people to come up to be with the Lord. And the first people who are going up uh, are all those who have believed and died, are your friends, your loved ones who have died in Christ, though they may have been gone for years. God is going to raise up their bodies from the grave in that very moment in the twinkling of an eye. They will put on incorruption as they are reunited with their souls. But what about those still alive at this moment? They will not experience the corruption of death, so they don't have to put on incorruption. Rather, they will put on immortality, because every one of us here is mortal. Obviously, we can't know how this is all going to happen, but it will happen, because God says it will happen. Whether somebody was burned in a fire, burned by cremation, buried in the ground, eaten by a fish, whatever, God's going to bring their bodies back and in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, they'll be raised. After the dead in Christ rise, living believers will rise and meet them in the Lord, and what an amazing reunion will be then. Friends and loved ones united forever together with the Lord. So we will all go to that home in heaven that God has prepared for us to be with him. So there is comfort then, ladies, in our future. Unlike those who grieve with no hope, when believers have loved ones die, we're comforted with these words about the rapture and the resurrection and its certainty. So this is a doctrine of comfort. <clears throat> this is not about having debates to figure out everything or to be confused in your mind. This is a blessed hope that we have to look forward to. This is why we can make it through whatever test God permits to come into our lives. This, is, this life is not all that there is. So rather than being consumed with loving the things of this world or just living selfishly, we need to love the thought of his appearing. It is imminent. We need to talk about this hope. We need to live our lives in light of this hope. We need to long for the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
And it can't help but purify your life and how you live if you live in light of this truth that this event could happen at any moment of any day. So are you looking forward to that day? Or are you living so focused on earth that you're not really longing for his coming? Living in light of this blessed hope should impact everything about our lives, how we look at our possessions, how we spend our money, how diligent we are to pray for the lost, to witness to the lost, how we continue to bat the battle of putting to death our flesh because it matters, and on and on and on it goes. So this is not just so that you have a better understanding of future prophetic events. This passage was written to be a comfort for all believers who have had a loved one pass away, as well as an exhortation for us to live our lives in light of his imminent return. So to be clear thinking about a quick timeline of events, I'll just do a quick review. The rapture of the church is the next event on the prophetic timetable that is to be fulfilled. This then will be followed by the seven-year tribulation period where one world ruler comes on the scene. He will be embraced by the world. Everybody who doesn't embrace him won't be able to buy, sell, eat, and they'll be beheaded. <clears throat> At the end of the seven years, Christ will return with his army of believers to the earth in judgment against all those who have gathered to destroy Israel. Then Israel will look on him whom they pierced, and they will mourn for him like they, you would mourn for your only child dying. And at that point, as I said, Jesus comes, he touches down on the Mount of Olives, mountain breaks, God obliterates the armies of the world. At that point, unbelievers will be separated from believers, the goats and the sheep. The sheep enter the millennial kingdom where Jesus will rule out of Jerusalem and we will reign with him for a thousand years. In that thousand year period, Satan has been bound in a bottomless pit. But you realize children will be born and more children and more children because those entering the millennial kingdom are mortals like we are. And they will have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and so on. So the, the earth will be, continue to be populated. So when we speak of his second coming, ladies, there's first the rapture of the church where he comes into the atmosphere and he calls his own to be with him, but he won't actually touch down on the earth at that point. It is at the end of the seven-year tribulation that he returns on his white horse with his army to defeat Antichrist and the armies of the world, and that will usher in then the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. And then I mentioned about all these kids being born because Satan will be released at the end of the thousand years from the bottomless pit. He will do one more rally and convince people and tempt them to go and rebel against Jesus, those who have been under his reign living on earth. There will be a final rebellion. That will be squashed. Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire. There will be the great white throne judgment where everyone will stand before him, before they're sentenced to eternity in the lake of fire. Then will be the new heavens and the new earth purged, and heaven will come down to earth, and we will be in the eternal state forever and ever. Well, that brings us to chapter 5, which is really a study of the day of the Lord. So, as to the times and epics, brethren, you have no need of anyone anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. So many people think the thief in the knife is about the rapture. It is not about the rapture. It is about the tribulation. 
While, we are, while they are saying peace, safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. But you, brethren, you're not in the darkness that the world that, the, that would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night. Those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we're of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another, build up one another, just as you are doing. So Paul changes gears here as he now tells these believers that prophecy should make a difference in how they live. In the first 11 verses, Paul shows the Thessalonians that they're different from the world in a few different areas. They're different in in their knowledge. Unlike the last section that we just looked at where Paul wrote because they were uninformed, I don't want you to be uninformed. Well, here he says in verse 1 that they are informed about the times and the epochs and the seasons. But what times is Paul speaking of? In verse 2, he's referring to the period of time known as the day of the Lord. And I'm sure from your studies you realize that is not one day. But rather a period of time in which many prophetic events take place. Isaiah 13, 9 through 11 says it's a time of judgment. Jeremiah 37 through 11 reveals it's ultimately ends with a time of blessing for Israel. So it is a time that covers the seven-year tribulation period when God pours out his judgment on the earth, as well as when Christ returns to earth, as well as the messianic kingdom where Christ reigns from Jerusalem for a thousand years. The Thessalonians knew the times and seasons of this time period. They obviously didn't know when, but they had been taught the order and the duration of the day of the Lord. They were familiar with Old Testament passages that spoke about this time. Just as we learned from our past study of uh, studying Revelation and Daniel, we know, as I said, there's the rapture, the tribulation, uh, the coming of Christ, the millennial kingdom, and specific events Jesus describes for believers to understand in Matthew 24. So they were aware that the day of the Lord would come just like a thief in the night. The tribulation will come when no one is expecting it. No one expects a thief to arrive. That's why people are caught unaware. If you've ever been robbed, as we have been, you are shocked to come home and find your things are not there and things are strewn all over. And that is how it will be when the tribulation happens and begins. Now, Paul changes the group of people he's speaking about in verse 3. It had been directly to the Thessalonians. Now, he says, they, when they are saying. So who are the they? They are, I'm sorry. They are the unbelievers living here on earth when the day of the Lord, the judgment begins. We are not included because we are not going to be here. He has already cleared up what will happen at the rapture of the church. So when the world thinks it finally has some peace and safety and the charisma of this man who rises quickly on the scene and offers solutions to everything, um, then suddenly destruction will hit just like the suddenness and inevitability of labor pains to a pregnant woman. Paul makes it clear that these Thessalonians had knowledge about the day of the Lord 
while the truth is unbelievers do not. As with the flood, only eight people believed God. Everybody else died. Lot warned his family about the judgment, and they laughed. If you reread Matthew 24, 36 through 39, you see that the world doesn't believe God. They disregard knowledge about God and his witness in creation, and they are totally unprepared then for judgment. This isn't a reference to Jesus coming for the church like a thief in the night. The church is waiting for the Lord and looking for his return. You don't wait for a thief expecting him. Paul is contrasting the knowledge that believers have with that of unbelievers concerning coming judgment. When we have knowledge of the truth, it leads believers to have right behavior. Knowledge of the coming judgment affects the way we live today. Not only do believers have difference in their knowledge, but also difference in their behavior, hopefully. Paul says, but you brethren are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. Believers have been born again. And they have an understanding that they're children of light. They have spiritual understanding. Unbelievers are characterized by spiritual ignorance. Not only do believers have spiritual light, they are to, commanded, we are commanded to be the light in the midst of the darkness. The day of judgment will not overtake believers like a thief. Believers are different. They live in the realm of God, not the realm of Satan. Only those in the darkness will be overtaken at the day of the Lord. So then let us not sleep as others do. Because we are different from the world, we are to behave differently. Being spiritually unaware as if you're asleep or drunk are the actions of unbelievers. Instead, believers are to be alert, aware, live their lives in light of spiritual truth. We are to look for his return with a pure mind and heart. Believers are to live lives that reflect the fact that they have a new nature. And we are to continually be on the alert and awake, living like we are children of the light. This is in contrast to those who are spiritually in darkness due to their sin and rebellion. And since we are of the day, let us be sober. That's why we need to put on that breastplate of faith and love. When the world around us doesn't believe the God of the Bible, we need the protection and faith that we find in God's promises to us. It is our faith in the Lord that defends us when we are tempted. Our sin stems from a lack of faith, that's why we worry. That's why we become afraid. But faith is like a breastplate. It protects our hearts and our minds are protected by the helmet and hope of salvation. Love the Lord who is to be the object of all of our affection and then he keeps us pure because we don't want to grieve and offend him by our lack of obedience. So when we blow it, we repent immediately and get on track. The helmet the hope of our salvation protects our minds and the truth about our future salvation. So when Satan accuses you, when he reminds you of how wicked you are and how undeserving you are and of your past behavior and of the things you've said and done, we have to protect our minds then with right thinking. Wait, God's word says there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You have to know truth, have scripture in your head to protect you. So the truth is believers will be delivered from the wrath of God in the tribulation period. Jesus took that wrath upon us when he paid for our debt of sin, and that is why we have hope. So the gospel message gives us freedom from fear, freedom from worrying about our future. This cannot be said of the unbeliever. They may make up religions, as I said, in their mind that make them feel better, but they are still enslaved to the fear of death. Believers don't live like unbelievers, because we have assurance for that God has not destined us for wrath. 
As believers, we will not experience the wrath of God. He's not speaking about hell here. The context is the day of the Lord, the tribulation. Rather, we will be caught up to, the, up to be with the Lord forever. So why can we rest in this? Because of verse 10, Christ died for our sins, both those who are dead in Christ and those who are alive when he returns at the rapture. All, believe, all believers will be with him and not experience the wrath of God. So what should we do with this knowledge, ladies? We ought to encourage and comfort one another. This is not a doctrine to be argue about or be frustrated about or confused about. It's not about just getting knowledge to retain in our heads. This is supposed to impact how you live. Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3, when the heavens and earth are purged away by fire, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? The writer to the Hebrews reminds us, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And we see the day drawing near, don't we? We need to remind one another of these truths because there are times when trials and difficulties overwhelm us. All of this life is temporary. Our real future and our real home is not here. It's with Jesus in heaven. So whether we die or we are the generation still alive to hear the shout of Jesus and the shout of the archangel and the trumpet of God, our future is forever with the Lord. These are the words that we are given to comfort each other. But that's only true for those whose hearts have been cleansed by faith by, in Jesus and his death on the cross. Many people intellectually acknowledge all these uh, ideas that Christ came, died, rose again. But their lives are still characterized by sin, bitterness, resentment, fear, and worry. And they don't even have sorrow over their sin. Intellectual acceptance of the truths of scripture is not equivalent to true salvation. Have you turned from your sins? Have you repented of the sins you know you've done? Does your heart long to live in obedience to God's holy scriptures? If not, I urge you to examine your heart so that you really are prepared for death or the rapture. How grievous to think that anyone sitting in this room after hearing messages from God's word is still resting in a false profession you may be made as a child when your life has never changed. Make sure you are ready for Christ to catch you away, either by death or the rapture. I pray we will use what we've learned here as a tool to bring comfort to each other in those moments in our lives when we're sinking with despair. Look up, ladies. It could be today. So I close with a quote from a favorite book of mine, Stepping Heavenward. And the context is a physician talking about those he's been at the bedside uh, for those who have died. He said, we must not forget that God is honored or dishonored by the way a Christian dies as well as by the way he lives. And it gives me great personal pain to see heirs of the eternal kingdom made such by the death of their Lord go shrinking and weeping to their full possession of their inheritance, end of quote. So let's live holy lives in light of the truth that today could be the day we are caught up to meet the Lord in the air or you know what? Today could be the day where we die. And we're with him because of death. Therefore, we should live holy lives with great confidence in our future. Lord, I thank you for this incredible passage that you've shared with us through the inspired word that Paul wrote. 
I thank you that we know this. We don't have to wonder. We know our future if we know you. I thank you that it is so thrilling a future to look forward to. So, Lord, I pray that we think about it when life here on earth becomes so tedious, so exhausting, so overwhelming. Lord, help us to live today in light of these truths. In your name, amen. Thank you, ladies.